got to move a pineapple. All right, let's go uh, Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some uh, Bibles scattered around the room, a little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would actually invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be uh, you know, kind of seen through the lens of knowing him deeply. And if the scriptures are what he uses to, to do that in your heart and life, then it seems pretty smart to be you know, making a regular habit of Bible reading. And so uh, we want to put one in your hands if you don't have one. Uh, so we're, we are in Proverbs today, not Corinthians. Uh, we've been walking through Corinthians for a long time. Paul helped us uh, understand 1 Corinthians chapter 13 last week. Um, and so that it's not only... And it's only within the context of love that, that any of the spiritual gifts make any sense at all. Like, they don't make sense outside of the contact, uh, context of love. In fact, without love, those things uh, aren't even good things. They're actually negative things. They can be destructive things, uh, damaging things. And so all of the things that the Corinthian church were desperately trying to chase after, trying to position themselves for, Paul helped us see last week that those things had a shelf life. They were temporary realities, right? That, that, that they weren't eternal things. But love... Love is one of those eternal things. Love will remain. And so when, when you think about it, that actually makes a ton of sense, right? Like the spiritual gifts are given to the church for the buildup of the church and the expansion of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. And so we won't need those things anymore when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. But, but love for each other, that, that's a forever thing, right? It's a forever thing. And so love is something that will keep going on and on. So Paul helped us see last week that then see all that last week. And man, I, I don't know about you, but I think he did a pretty good job. Anybody else think so? All right, good. I'm kind of proud of him. Not only because he stood up here with, you know, lights on and a camera on in front of a bunch of people. Like, how many of y'all think that that's a fun day? <laughs> not only because he manned up and did that, um, and, and not only because, like, somehow that boy came up with 40 minutes worth of content. Did anybody in the room think that Paul could talk for 40 minutes straight? I'm going to have to go longer today just to prove I can. <laughs> no, no, Paul stood up here. He did, a, he did a great job. But listen, I'm not only proud of him because he stood up here and, and did those things. Um, I'm proud of him because before that moment ever got here, before the lights and the camera and the people, he spent a couple of weeks wrestling deeply with the text, all so that he could serve our church family well and help teach it. I don't care what it costs me. I want more of those. We on board with that? Yeah, me too. So now that Paul has helped us put a bow on chapter 13, we're going to take a couple of weeks off from our Corinthian series. We've got something special planned for next week. Um, so Silas and Riley Thompson will, will be here. Uh, they are Christian workers in Mongolia. Um, we call them Christian workers. If you're new to church things, uh, we call them Christian workers instead of another word because they live and work in a country where the governmental authorities are not excited about Christians doing Christian things. And so they can move there with like a normal job and then just tell everybody they want about Jesus. That's an okay thing. And so that's what they do. And so Silas and Riley are going to be here next week. And so um, we live in an age when things get broadcasted out over the internet. So we try to help them in that way. Um, so we've been supporting the Thompsons for a couple of years now. And Silas is going to preach for us next Sunday. And so, uh, again, that's another one of those times that I think is going to be really, really fruitful for us. Um, but that's next week. So what do we do this week? Well, we got this weird hole in our preaching calendar. And so uh, I, I, 
I'm not going to take too much time here, um, but I'd, I'd like to take a stab, I think, at helping us read Proverbs well. So we're walking through Proverbs as a church family. All right? we, we've got all this, this incredible wisdom that we're just rolling out week after week after week. Like, like, is there a right way to read it? Is there a wrong way to read it? I think the answer is yes. I think there's actually a very wrong way to read it. We're, I mean, if we're, like, Proverbs has been really fruitful for us. Like, if nothing else, like, um, chapter 16 and chapter 20 today allow me to kind of be endearing when I call our older saints gray hairs. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds cute when I say it that way. It's, it's not an insult. It's your crown of glory. <laughs> and so Proverbs has been really fruitful for me. But at the same time, at the same time, I think that the potential for misreading Proverbs is never really that far away. In fact, I think the, I think the default is for most people to fall into a terrible misreading of the Proverbs. I think it can go south really, really quick. And so we're 20 chapters into this book right now, and some of the Proverbs, they sound like nothing more than just basic common sense, right? Like just basic common sense. And let's be honest, we live in a world where we desperately need more common sense. Like, like that, nobody's arguing that. That's something that we kind of lack in this world lately. And so uh, we, we read chapter 20 just a few minutes ago. Like, does anybody doubt the cross-cultural wisdom that a sluggard will not plow in autumn, but will seek at harvest and have nothing? Right? Like, that makes immediate sense. Long before Aesop started writing parables about grasshoppers and ants, King Solomon knew how the world worked. So we got this cross-cultural common sense going on. And so a lot of what we find in the Proverbs seems applicable in just about every situation of life. It's not just the religious ones. We can take this wisdom a lot of times into cultures that have nothing to do with Jesus or, or even nothing to do with God things at, at all. And it seems like it would still make a ton of sense. And so sometimes the Proverbs just read as if it's the obvious better way to live. Right? Even if you're not really interested in doing the God thing. You're just smarter, I guess. And you add to that, there are also a lot of places in the Proverbs that seem to double down on the promise that we'll experience fruitful living if we would just be wise enough to apply its wisdom. Um, that's the case in Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. It says, I don't know, yeah. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Solomon tells his boys that, hey, there, there's some fruitfulness to this. Do something with it. In chapter 3, he says this, uh, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your, let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life. And I don't know why it changed there. <laughs> um, for, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. A little bit later in chapter, uh, chapter 3, uh, 3.13, it says this, Blessed are the ones who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. 
And so over and over and over again, the promise kind of seems to be, hey, if you'll just do these things, if you'll just apply this wisdom in your life, things will go really, really well for you, right? I mean, that's kind of the tone. Follow my seven-step program or, or my three paths to enrichment or my fill-in-the-blank, and you won't have to deal with all the junk that your stupid friends are going to have to deal with. And that's kind of the tone of the Proverbs in a lot of places. And so a lot of people, a lot of people come to the Proverbs as if Solomon was just some kind of ancient, spiritual-focused life coach. That's kind of how they treat him. Obviously better than the secular guys. Those guys have earthly wisdom. Solomon's wisdom is divine. But the approach is the same. The logic that a lot of people approach the Proverbs with is that if we'll just buy into the program, apply a simple strategy of wisdom, that all of our problems will go away and we'll live the fruitful life wise life. But then comes along chapter 4. Chapter 4 don't play that game. Doesn't carry that same tone. In fact, I was going to shoot that theory full of holes. Um, I think my guys in the back have the, the, the slides for me now. Um, look at verse 20 with me. Proverbs chapter 4. I'm in the wrong place in my Bible. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. He says, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Verse 22, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Okay, so based on what came before, what we saw in those little snippets from chapter 1 and chapter 3, like, based on what came before it, you would think, you would think that Solomon is pressing in again to this kind of cause and, and effect trade-off, right? Do these things and you will have success. Do these wise things and life will go well for you. But he says something in verse 21 that kind of shifts the scenario just a little bit. Did you catch it? He says, let them not, what? Escape. As if, as if there's another variable here in play. Something can run away from you. Something can get out of your hands. It's not simply do A and B will occur. Solomon introduces the possibility here that wisdom can get away from us if we're not attentive to something. It doesn't matter how sensible the Father's words might be. It doesn't matter how timeless the truths that are laid out at our feet happen to be for his sons. Wisdom can escape us if our guard isn't up. It can run away if we're not actively hanging on to something important. So the obvious next question is, what is that important something, right? Well, look at verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, so Solomon tells his boys that in order to get the head stuff figured out, what they need to focus on is the heart stuff. That in order to get the head stuff figured out, what they really need to be paying attention to right now and working on is the heart stuff. That this is, this is, he doesn't just kind of hint that it's important, though. This isn't, you know, find some time to also work on this. No, he says, guard it with all vigilance. 
This is your life might depend on it kind of level stuff going on here. But, but why in the world would the heart be you know, even important though? Like, like there are a lot of people in this world who would immediately balk at the idea that the heart is as or even more important than, than, than the head. Like how dare you bring the heart into to something that should only be the head's domain? There are a lot of people, I, I, mean, I met some, there are a lot of people in this world who would see the heart as an unwanted voice and what should only be a cold analysis of the facts. Right? Maybe, maybe you are that person. They would accuse the heart of often getting in the way of true wisdom. So why would the wise king tell us that the heart is so important? He says, for from it flows springs of life. See, Solomon apparently thinks that there is a source that all of your thoughts about wisdom and all your attempts at pursuing wisdom originally flows out of. There's something that comes before the head that shapes the head. In fact, he seems to think that there is no such thing as a purely indifferent analysis of the facts. That how we view wisdom, even timeless common sense, it will always be affected by what our heart cherishes and chases after. Always. Or we can say it in a more modern way. Your heart has confirmation bias. Heard that on the news before, right? And it will always instruct the head to go looking for and make sense out of what it really treasures. To go chasing after what it cherishes and says, that's it. That's the wisdom I want. That's what I'm going to call truth. doesn't really break up the equation though right like it's it just backs it up a step it's like I, i'm pretty smart i can get that that piece figured out if so if i if i want wisdom what i got to do is this i got to discipline my heart to love biblically wise things and then once i discipline my heart to love biblically wise things then a will lead to b which will then lead to c right i got it i got it i'm good like that i can pull it off still cause and effect, right? I'll just give it some extra effort and we'll get this piece sorted out just like I got all the other pieces sorted out. Is that the game we play? There's a couple problems with that logic, though. First of all, the young men on the receiving end of this advice, Solomon's sons, um, well, it doesn't go well for them. If you, if you don't know their story, uh, we're going to learn later on that Solomon's sons are morons. Just absolute morons. Um, when Solomon dies and leaves the kingdom in their hands, what do they do? They immediately ruin it. Despite having an entire book of the Bible dedicated to imparting wisdom specifically to them, they mess it up fast. Immediately they wreck the place. The golden age of Israel comes to a swift and decisive end the moment Solomon's sons take the throne. The moment. Like the first action from his first son who is king is just absolutely terrible and the kingdom splits in two. Solomon's sons are morons. But there's a second problem with the logic and it's that Solomon's sons are not the only morons. Um, 
See, not only do we find a positive example of wise hearts in Solomon's own sons, the truth is that we don't find a positive example of a perfectly wise heart anywhere else in the Old Testament either. It's nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Solomon himself often failed of his glorious own advice. Yeah, people traveled from far and wide to to benefit from his famous wisdom, but he was also dumb enough to marry 700 wives and keep another 300 girls on the side. There was zero chance that was going to work out in his favor. No chance at all. That's not the worst of it. I mean, it's, it's epically stupid, but it's not the worst part. The worst part is that in order to keep those 700 women happy, he also sanctioned idolatry in the land of Israel. He actively led God's people astray to worship false gods. The wisest man to ever live is also guilty of incredibly heinous sin. Heinous sin. His unparalleled wisdom did not protect him from unparalleled folly. In another place in the Bible that we call wisdom literature, the Psalms, Solomon's father, King David, he wrote in a couple different places, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he said this, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not a one. See, both Solomon and David understood, deeply understood, both in wisdom and in life application. They both deeply understood that mere access to wisdom was not enough. The fact that wisdom was there for them to grab, it wasn't good enough. And so all of those things, no matter how awesome the wisdom might have been, no matter how common sense the wisdom might have been, all of those things flowed first and foremost out of a heart that was either bent towards God or bent away from God. Every bit of it. The fountain of the heart needed to change before the head could ever be rightly instructed. We could point to Solomon, or we could point to his sons, or let's be honest, we could point to David, and we could definitely point to ourselves. It doesn't matter. Same dirty fountain. Same dirty fountain. I said a moment ago that There was no example of a perfectly wise heart in the Old Testament, but that's not the case for the New Testament, is it? Someone comes along that changes the game, changes the story. Jesus stepped onto the scene, but the fountain of his heart wasn't pumping out dirty water like mine does, or like yours does. The Bible tells us that he lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. Jesus was perfectly sinless on our behalf, and he was perfectly affectionate to the Father on our behalf. And hear me, National Baptist Church, he was perfectly wise on our behalf. And for those who have placed their faith in his finished work on our behalf, his sacrificial death on the cross to make payment for our sin and to give us righteousness in exchange. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus and his work, he gives us a new heart that can now begin growing in Christ-likeness, that can begin chasing with joy after timeless wisdom that has any real chance of sticking. 
through the grace and sufficiency of Jesus in our place. We move from the category of trying desperately to achieve the wise life and into the category of growing slowly but day by day into the wise life that has already been purchased for us. Those are different places to be. This is not some cause and effect formula to guarantee success for our meager 80 years. No, we are given new heart fountains that flow more and more consistently day after day to be in line with God's good design for our life. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I'd love to introduce you to him. I'd love to introduce you to him this morning. I'll, I'll just tell you up front, though, uh, he's not interested in adding a little spirituality to your life. Sprinkling a little bit of godly wisdom in here and there. That's not the game he's playing. No, no. He wants to change every last bit of you. Every last bit of you. And he will immediately start going after the very core of who you are and what makes you you. He wants to give you a new fountain. The question to be answered this morning is whether you trust him or not to do a better job than you. I mean, how's it going? Think you're stronger than him? Smarter than him? More capable than him? Is he more practiced than you? More aware of what you need than you are? Or, so you, or do you still blindly believe that you got it figured out? Puff up that chest, boy. How's it going? Put a pin in that and come back to it. What about all of those of us who are already followers of Jesus? I mean, what's our next step? Great, new fountain. Woo! Now, now that Jesus has changed the heart, where, where do we go from here? Like, we still got the book of Proverbs. Is, does it apply to us? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. We, we, Solomon tells his sons to, to guard their hearts with all vigilance, right? We still, we still got something to fight for here, but now we have redeemed tools to fight with. We've shifted categories, and now we can approach this differently. Look at verse 24. Solomon says this, Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Okay, so now that we're looking at this stuff through the, the lens of new hearts redeemed by Jesus' perfect wisdom in our place, Solomon shows us here that there's some things that we can like actually fight for. And first on the list, crooked speech. So it's not merely enough to abstain from it. He tells his boys to actively put it away from them. Well, why would he do that? Because it's not some white-knuckle moment for us. We're not trying to dig deep and achieve anymore. We understand our frame. We understand that we are weak in this regard and that sin is a very real possibility for us. If we screw up here... It's not that we've lost the good and wise life. Jesus clearly paid for the, the debt of that sin too. But we want to look and live like the one who was perfectly wise on our behalf. And so we would rather put as much distance as possible between us and even the possibility of crooked speech. We want, we want to separate ourselves from the thing that we know we're not strong enough to accomplish on our own. So we run away from it. We trust that knowing and walking deeply with Jesus is a far sweeter joy than 
crooked speech could ever try to pretend that it is. So we put it away from ourselves. We take the threat seriously and we separate ourselves from it. And the next three verses carry the same tone. Look at verse 25. It said, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Okay, so Solomon says, hey, you're going to be tempted to, to, to look to the left, and you're going to be tempted to, to, to look to the right, and you're going to be tempted to, to blaze on ahead without stopping to think carefully about where you, where you place your feet. But listen, there is a prize right down the center of the pathway that you can set your eyes on. But that prize, it's not the good life. And it's not the fruit from all of your hard work. No, it's the infinitely fulfilled promises of your all-sufficient Savior. It is rest in the arms of the one who is smart enough to not actually leave figuring out the pathway up to you. Just set your sights on him and take the next step. Solomon tells his boys, keep your heart with all vigilance. Fight for these things. Without it, hey, listen, boys, my wisdom is not going to be much help for you. It'll escape you. I can give you wisdom, but it's not going to stick. It'll run away if you don't get the heart thing figured out here. Based on what we know about Solomon's sons, looks like that wisdom escaped. How do we guard ourselves against such things? Right? What, what, what do we do with this? Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging out today. Listen, you can, you can go chasing after what Solomon's sons clearly didn't have. Redeemed hearts. Hearts that were changed by a relationship with God that fundamentally turned them inside out. In short, we, we want you to meet Jesus. If you don't know him yet, we want you to meet him even, even today. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated from God relationally because of our sin. We are owed his righteous wrath. We are owed the punishment, the fair punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches, in the very same breath, the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive by his grace through Christ. How does he do that? He sent his son. To live the sinless life that neither you or I are capable of living. To die on the cross in our place as a substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And to be raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the one who conquered both sin and death, King Jesus now stands victorious. Calling you to respond to him in repentance and in faith. And those are churchy words, I get it. Repentance and faith. Repentance just means to turn away and to turn to. Right? To turn away from your sin and to turn to Him as Savior and Lord. Uh, faith is just the Bible's word for trust. To put your hope and your trust in the one who is good on your behalf and wise on your behalf and sufficient on your behalf. You can, you can repent and put your faith in Jesus this morning. I'd love to be helpful to you. We're going to 
sing another song in a second. I'll be down front here if you want somebody to talk to. Today's a good day to do that. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? What do we do? Well, same thing we do every week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And this week, man, I, I think he's showing us that he's the one that's got the good life figured out, not us. Certainly not me. I don't have it figured out. Sometimes I fall into the rut of thinking I do. I, I, think, I think we can be just as blindly committed to self-wisdom as we can be to self-righteousness. That's in me. It's in me more often than I want to admit. And for the Christian, self-anything is a bad place to land. It's a terrible place to land. So we can't achieve, but we can rest forever in His achievement. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. However God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Proverbs. God, our, my fear here is that we'll, is we'll take your good word to us and we'll try to use it as a tool to exalt ourselves. We do it all over the place in the scriptures, but I think it's more dangerous here. God, humble us before you. Help us to see that, that our heart often wants to run the wrong direction. And it doesn't matter how talented we are, and it doesn't matter how smart we are, it doesn't matter how good a worker we are, wisdom will escape us if our hearts are not bound to you. Continue working in us. Continue to, to change us and to stir in us a deeper love for you and your wisdom. Thank you for sending your son who is wise when I am incapable of wisdom, who is righteous when I am incapable of righteousness. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you draw people into your kingdom right now? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. Let's sing in tenderness together.